tell you what, man. Oh, a lot of those uh, emotions going on right now. It's really good to be here. If we have never met, my name is Brady. And the thing that I like to tell people, the most important thing that you can know about me is that, that I am an imperfect follower of Jesus. Uh, for, those that you, uh, for those of you who do know me, you know the imperfect is, that's, that's real for sure. Uh, the follower of Jesus might be, I don't know, iffy. But I say that because I just think that that's the most important thing, not only for you to know about me, but for me to remind myself of. Um, because there's something about our culture that I think wants to strip that identity from us, something in my flesh. I was thinking a lot about this this morning uh, as I was teaching, but I was thinking a lot about uh, competency and what we're good at. And I'm guessing in this room, there are a lot of people that are very good at just different things. People that have worked really hard at something and you're, you're like, oh, I'm really good at this. Who's good at something? Is anyone good at something? Anyone so good at something that you teach other people that thing that you're good at? Come on, it's okay. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I, I, one point in my life, I thought I was really good at Mario Kart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I thought I'm, I'm really good. And then I played John Gallagher and I thought, oh, Oh, that's what it's like to be really good at something. Uh, when, when you get lapped, you know, it's just, you know, and, and it's tough because Mario Kart's important. It was a very important to my identity. Now I've, I've, I've worked it out. I've, I've gone to counseling and I'm okay. It's fine. But there's, you know, this is what we do in our world, in our culture in particular, there's a lot of pressure to be good at things, to become competent, to become self-sufficient, to become independent. Uh, it starts out when we're really, really little, right? As soon as we're born, our parents are desperately trying to get, get us to be competent at sleeping through the night, right? So they can regain their sanity. And then they're trying to get us to become competent at communicating because they need to know more than more and done, right? Like we, they, they need to know, why are you crying? Why, why, why do you keep screaming? I need to know so I can help you, so I can take care of you. And then they want us to become competent at uh, going to the bathroom in the bathroom and not in our pants. And, and then just from then on, society takes over. And it's like, we want you to become good at life, to become a self-sufficient adult. Uh, anybody feel that pressure? It's hard. It's tough. And it's not a bad thing. It's good. It's good to become competent at things, right? It's good to become an expert at things. It's really good, but there's a lot of pressure. And so I, I found myself, and maybe you can relate, maybe you can't, but I found myself a lot. Um, the, the past couple of years is even pretending that I was an expert at things. And I would use terms like, oh yeah, I did some research. Does anybody use that term in, in, in the last couple of years? No, I did some research. I read a couple articles. No, I know what I'm talking about. I was thinking about this as, you know, you know, as I, I go to the doctor and, and I've, I've done a little research on, you know, whatever it is that I'm dealing with or struggling with or whatever. And, and I think about, I wonder what the doctor thinks when they've gone through four years of college, four years of medical school, they've gone three years of residency, they devoted their life to the study of the human body and helping people. And then some patient comes in and says, hey, I think you should try this. I read a couple articles and they're like, who are you? What are you... You have no idea what you're talking about, right? I mean, all you know is the hip bone is connected to the knee bone and that's it. 
And I just, but there's this pressure, right? There's this desire that we have to become an expert at something, to know what we're talking about, to not be in this word. I don't know if this is you, this word. If there's any word that I do not want anyone to call me, it is this word. I hate it. It it strikes at the core of my being. It's the word needy. Anybody else like to be called needy? You're so needy. And you're like, oh, thank you so much. I was really working at that. I hate that. My entire life, I have strived to become anything other than needy. I remember one time early on in my marriage, my wife called me needy. I said, I need you not call me that again. That's, that is, that's not okay. And I honestly, I did not, I didn't handle it well. I did not handle it well. And you know, to her credit, I was being needy. I was being needy. And, and needy is just, I don't know. I just, I hate it because I've, I've just my whole life tried to become good at things, try to become independent, try to become self-sufficient. I want people to think highly of me. I want people to think, man, you're good at stuff. One time I was, uh, I was with my dad and my sister and my dad had um, built this. Anybody into boxing? Any, any people into boxing? There, there are different kind of punching bags that you can punch when you're developing boxing skills. One is that, that big one that Captain America punched off the, the deal. But then another one is the, the really small one that looks like that thing in the back of your throat, the uvula. It's like, it's a speed bag. And, and, and you know, in the boxing movies, they do this, right? And if you ever tried it, it's, it's really difficult. But my dad, trying to help me with my hand-eye coordination, he built one of those for me. And so I, I worked on it all the time. And my sister came down one night with my dad and she wanted to punch on the punching bag. And so she went to hit it. And I was like, Courtney, Courtney, wait, wait, no, 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 you need to. And as, as soon as I said that, she's like, I know what I'm doing. And then she reared back, came down on it and just cracked her knuckles on the thick wooden piece that's holding the speed bag in place and just, just skinned up her knuckles. And I laughed at her and, and just because I'm godly, I just, it was, I, mean, I tell you what, like, that's me though. That's me. I'm that same person. I don't want you telling me what to do. I know what I'm doing. I don't want you showing me how to do something. I know how to do it. I'm fine. Because we've developed this desire in our culture, in our hearts, in our minds to become self-sufficient. I'm good to go. I don't need anyone. Now, on one side of the coin, that's not a bad thing. It's good to become good at your job, right? It's good to study hard in school. It's good to learn and develop skills and develop talents. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But what if at the same time, it's a catch-22? What if it's a good thing, but it's also the thing keeping us from the very way that God desires for us to interact with him? What if our strengths, our talents, our competencies, the things that we've become really good at and self-sufficient at, what if those are the things that keep us from approaching God in a way that God loves to have us come to him? Why don't we turn to the book of Genesis? Turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, it's at the very beginning of your Bible. Uh, if you have one of the Mosaic Bibles, it's on page one. Um, 
Yeah, it is. is it, and it's actually not marked in the Mosaic Bibles. It's right next to page XIV. Uh, Roman numeral people, you know what that is? XIV, that is? What? what? 14. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Roman numerals, man. You, you need to know those. You use those all the time. Is there any other time you use them besides the Super Bowl? I, can't, I could not think of one thing this morning besides the Super Bowl, the only way we use them, and yet we still teach them in school. It's, it's important. It's important. Spend your time on that. Learn, learn Roman numerals. Genesis chapter 1. And before we get in the scripture, I'm going to pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We believe what Jesus said is true, that it is your spirit that will lead us to truth. So we ask, Spirit, that you would open our hearts and minds and lead us to truth. Protect us from any foolish things that I might say. And I pray that you'd help us encounter you in a powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis chapter one, verse one, probably some of you guys have this uh, verse memorized, but Genesis chapter one, verse one says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse two, it says this, there's a problem. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I tell you what, that verse has so much in it. I'm continually blown away by the writer of the scriptures. As I study the Bible more and more, and I see the depth that is in there, the beauty that is in there, I'm just more in awe of God that he could put together something that is so incredibly brilliant that people could spend their entire lives studying it and never get to the depths of it. And this verse, Genesis chapter one, verse two is one of those verses. Now, the picture that God is painting for us is a picture of a universe that is completely and utterly anti-life. That there is absolutely no way that life could exist in the state that the universe is in this moment in time. And there are three problems or three obstacles that God paints to demonstrate for us that there's no way that life could exist. And the first one is darkness. How many of you guys have ever been caving? Any spelunkers around here? Yeah, you've been caving? Have you ever gone into the back of a cave and then turn off all the lights? It's an odd feeling. It's, it's a little bit creepy. And if you think for a second, how in the world could I function if like our lights went out? There's no way I could get back to the, to the front of the cave. There's no way. There's no way. I'm so impressed with uh, men and women that right now don't have the gift of sight and, and the, the abilities, the things that they can do. It's, it blows me away because if, if you're in a cave and you can't see, it's very difficult to function. But that's not the only problem. See, if there's no light, there's no photosynthesis, right? Which means there's no plants. And if there's no plants, there are no what? Vegans, right? I remember I was in uh, the... Oh, I don't, I, I don't remember what grade, but I was pretty young, sixth grade, fifth grade, I'm not sure. And we had a quiz. And the question on the quiz was, if the plants died, which one of these creatures would die? Would the herbivores die? Would the carnivores die? Or would both die? And I, and I thought, well, obviously it's the herbivores. It's the plant eaters. They're the ones that are gonna die. And I checked it. I was so confident. And I got it back and I was wrong. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. But see, if the plants die, 
the plant eaters die. But if the plant eaters die, then the meat eaters have nothing to eat. And so they both die. So if there's no light, not only can you not see, but you can't live because there's no food. Without light, life cannot exist. But God wanted to up it. He wanted to double up. He wanted to make sure that we knew that the state of the universe without God is impossible for life to exist. And so he said, there was the deep. Now, if you're anything like me and you're rational, you have a rational fear of being lost at sea, adrift at sea in, night, in the night in the middle of the ocean, right? You have a rational fear of that. In fact, if you don't have that rational fear, I should get you to talk to someone because you should be afraid of that. It's terrifying. No one should go up to the edge of a cruise ship at night and look over. You just shouldn't do that. It's just dangerous. It's inappropriate behavior for responsible adults. But the word there, the Hebrew, were you guys going to learn some Hebrew tonight? You're like, yes. And some of you are like, no, that is, why, why, who cares? The Hebrew word there is the word tahom. You say tahom? Tahom. Now, to home, the picture that you should get in your mind, the fear that should begin to well up in you when you see that word is that fear of being adrift in the ocean all alone at night. You can't see anything because to home is dark, deep chaos waters. It's the abyss. And so when you're reading this as a Hebrew and you saw that word, you think, oh no, that is a place where life cannot thrive and cannot exist. Thirdly, it's dark, right? You got the home, but then also it talks about the land was wild and waste or empty and uninhabitable. It's the Hebrew phrase tohu vavohu. And what that means in, in picture form is picture the movie Dune, okay? The movie Dune, just deserts as far as the eye can see, just mounds of sand everywhere. And there's no water. There is no life that could possibly exist anywhere, It's this place where there's no way that life could thrive or exist. And so God sets about solving the anti-life equation. And I know that's a DC reference and I know we're Marvel fans in here, but it's okay, it's fine, we can do that. But this is what God does. Day one, what does God create? God said, let there be light, right? There was darkness, now God solves that problem, there's light. Day two, God separates the waters. He takes the Tahom and he separates them and he creates a space where life can exist. Day three, he brings up the land out of the waters and then he causes vegetation to grow on the land. So now there's a place for humans to walk around, to build homes, to function, and there is food to eat. There's a space to live and there's light to see and light to produce photosynthesis, right? So now there's the opportunity for life to exist. And so the next three days, what God does, he fills it with life. He fills the, the, the sea with fish, the air with birds, the land with animals, and the pinnacle of his creation is humanity. Humankind created in the image of God. And in Genesis chapter two, he kind of expands on that. What was the creation of humankind like? And it says this, Genesis chapter two, verse seven, says this, then the Lord God, formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living creature. It would be easy at this point in time 
particularly with our baggage that we carry in our modern Western world to think, here's what happened. God set up the universe in such a way where human humanity could exist and thrive. And then he formed the first human and he pushed the start button and said, go for it. You can now live because you have got space, you've got light, you've got food, and you don't need me. But there's an incredible picture right here on page one and two of the Bible to show us that that is not the case. And the first thing is another Hebrew word. This is one of my favorite ones. It's ruach. Ruach. If you don't, if you don't spit a little bit, you're not saying it right. It's ruach. Now, ruach is this. Everybody take your hand, right or left hand, it doesn't matter. Take your hand and put it right in front of your mouth and say, hello. Hey, how are you doing? It's good to see you. Say it again. Hello. Okay. The thing that you felt on your hand, that's Ruach. That's Ruach. The thing that you breathe in, that's Ruach. When you go out in the woods and you see the the trees, the leaves on the trees, they're all moving about. The thing that is moving the leaves that you can't see, that's Ruach. But it's also the word that is used for the spirit of God. So back in Genesis chapter one, Verse two, that last tag, it said, but the spirit of God, the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. And just in this word itself, you get a picture of the reality that what we need not only to have life, but to have our life sustained is God's spirit. Now, the way that we would talk about it in our modern world, in our scientific minds, we talk about, you know, you breathe in air and air's got a bunch of different things in it, but we need the oxygen. So that gets into our lungs and that gets into our bloodstream. It gets to our extremities. It makes our brain synapses fire. And that's how we live and that's how we think. But God knew this. God knew the science behind it. He created the science behind it, but he wanted to give us a picture that it's not just oxygen that is giving us life and sustaining our life. It is him that he is the one who is continually, constantly giving us life. That every time we breathe in and every time we breathe out, that is Ruach. Different Hebrew scholars have talked about this for years, Uh, but you guys know the name that God told Moses when Moses was like, hey, what's your name? What should I call you? What should I tell the Hebrews, uh, your people to call you? What, What did he say? Yahweh. But what they've, what they've said in their studies is that Yahweh is two sounds. It's the sound of breathing in, yah, and the sound of breathing out, way, And so the name that God gave the people is not only I am, but it's a name that is on every human's lips constantly reminding us that he is the one that is continually sustaining our life, who is constantly, generously, graciously giving us life. God wants us to know that he didn't just push the start button and say, you don't need me anymore. He said, no, I want to constantly be intimately present in your life, in your heart, in your mind. That's the relationship I want you to have with me. That's the relationship that I, that I want to have with you. And you see this work out in the life of Moses. So Moses, you guys remember Moses? He was born, his mom put him into a basket in the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter 
raised him. And then at one point in time, and we learn this when Stephen is giving his last message, it says that Moses at one point in time, for some reason or another, believed that he was supposed to deliver God's people. So God's people, they were in slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians were oppressing them. They were enslaving them. And Moses just believed that he was the one that was supposed to deliver them. And so in his own strength, in his own wisdom, in his own planning, he tried to deliver the people and it did not go well. And he wound up in exile out in the wilderness with sheep for 40 years. And I can imagine him marinating, ruminating on that moment for a long time, thinking, man, I'm a failure. I I thought I was supposed to deliver the people, but obviously not because I can't. I tried and I failed. And then 40 years later, he sees a, a burning bush up on a mountain but it continues to burn and burn and burn and it never burns up. And he's like, that's something I need to see. So he goes up onto the mountain and he realizes and finds out that's God. That God is there and God asks him to come to him and says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go be the deliverer of my people. And Moses is like, wait a second, I tried that, it didn't go so well. I, I, I think you got the wrong guy, God. And he gives all these different excuses to God. God, I can't do it. I, God, I don't have eloquent speech. There's no way. Who am I, God? They're not going to believe me. And all of his excuses are focused in on him. And what God says to him is not, oh, no, you, you'll be fine. No, you know, you're, you're a good speaker. No, people are totally going to believe you. You're very believable, Moses. You're going to be fine. No, what God says to Moses is, I will be with you. It's not that you need a more eloquent speech pattern. It's not that you need to be more compelling or more believable. It's that you need me with you. That's what you need. You need me right by your side. You need me to be with you, to be guiding you and leading you and empowering you. And in the next few pages of scripture throughout the, uh, the book of Exodus, you see this really neat relationship between Moses and God develop. This, this really intimate relationship where Moses is continually talking to God and continually crying out to God. God sets the people free through these plagues that, that, that Moses speaks out. And they find themselves on the edge of the, the sea. There's this, this sea and they're backed up against the sea. They can't go through the sea. And then Pharaoh's army is on the other side and they're pinned and there's no way out. And Moses cries out to God and God splits the sea. They walk through the sea, they go into the wilderness, They go on a three-day journey and there's no water. They can't drink. They find some water, but it's bitter. They can't drink it. It's undrinkable water. So Moses cries out to God and God provides water for them to drink. Later on, they can't, there's no food. And they cry out to God. Moses cries out to God and God provides food. And you just see over time, Moses really has this very dependent relationship upon uh, God this close relationship with God where he is continually daily dependent upon him for water, for bread, for life. They get to Mount Sinai and Moses is with the people of Israel and God says, I want to enter into a wedding covenant with you as a nation. And so he gives them the terms of the covenant and Israel says, yes, we will do this. We will absolutely do this. We want to be your people. We want you to be our God. We will commit to you. We will enter into this covenant together. And then not 40 days later, they're making a golden calf and they're worshiping this other God. 
Not 40 days have gone by from the time they made this wedding commitment to God that they're cheating on God with other gods. And you see the deep emotions well up in God. He gets angry, as you would imagine. And he says to Moses, here's the deal. Okay, I'm not gonna destroy this people, but I, I need to do something different because I'm a holy God. I'm a righteous God. And these people are not. If they continue to rebel, it's, it's not gonna go well. So here's what I'm gonna do for you, Moses. You remember the promised land that I talked about? That you were gonna, I was gonna take you to this land flowing with milk and honey. It's this incredible land. I'm gonna give you that land. In fact, I'm gonna take an angel and I'm gonna send this angel before you and he's gonna take care of all of the things that you need. There are a bunch of people in the land that are gonna be opposed to you. He's gonna take care of them. And y'all are just gonna go into the promised land uh, without any problems at all. And you're gonna have all the food that you need, all the honey that you need. You're gonna have the land that you need. You're gonna have the homes that you need. You're gonna have everything that you want, everything you desire, everything you've been promised. But here's the catch. I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, I might kill you along the way. Because that's how, how stubborn y'all are. I know what you're actually like. I know what it's gonna be like. And if I go with you, it's not gonna go well. So I'm gonna give you everything that you want, just not me. And Moses, having realized his utter dependence upon God, responds to God, if you don't go, I won't go. If you won't go, we're not going. If you don't go up from here, we will not go. And you think about that choice. And that's a, that's a big deal. I mean, think about this. If, if God came to you and said, I'll give you whatever you want. What, what do you want? Blank check. You know what a check is? You know what a blank check is? That, that thing people still write checks these days? They, they do in Quincy where I've been living. They still write checks. That's a thing. In fact, one time I was in the express checkout lane at the grocery store and someone was writing a check. And I was like, this is the express lane. What are you doing? I, was like, I went back in time. Imagine this, God said, hey, I'm gonna give you whatever you want. What do you want? What do you desire? What's your deepest heart's desire? What do you want your life to look like? What do you want your life to be like? I'll give you that, but you have to choose that or me. It's a tough choice. But Moses by this time knows that what he needs is not the promised land. What he needs is God. And what has been so powerful to me in the last few days as I've been meditating on this is that that choice cost Moses the promised land. Because Moses made that choice, he didn't get to go in the promised land. Because just like God said, the Israelites were they had these hard hearts and they continually rebelled against him. And so that generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses didn't get to go in the promised land. But I guarantee if we talked to Moses today and we asked him, would you make that choice over again? Or would you choose the promised land? I guarantee he'd say, of course I'd make that choice. I got God out of the deal. I got God. And this heart disposition of Moses is such a beautiful picture of the way that God desires us to approach him. When we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus. And I tell you what, Jesus, oh, he gives such an incredible picture of what our God is like. I love the way that Jesus interacts with people, particularly people who are marginalized, people who are oppressed, people who are powerless, people who are overlooked, people who are excluded. 
the ones who no one wants. And just the way that Jesus interacts with these people, it's so beautiful. There's this time where this man, he has a son and his son is possessed by a demon. And this demon is actively trying to kill his boy. And so anytime his son is walking by water, the demon throws him into the water so he might drown. And anytime his boy's walking by a fire, he throws him into the fire so that he might get burned alive. And you can imagine this father just totally desperate. He's tried everything he can. He's taken him to every teacher, every doctor, every you know, you know, person who could cast out demons, everyone he possibly can, and nobody can help him. He's at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what to do. So he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can heal my boy, will you? And Jesus focuses in on that little word, can. He says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And in this moment, the dad evaluates his heart. And he realizes that the thing standing in between his boy being killed and having life is his belief. And he realized he obviously doesn't have the belief that he needs. He obviously doesn't have the amount of faith that he needs. And so he cries out to Jesus, I do believe, but I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I know that I don't believe enough. Help me, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, you don't have enough faith. I told you, you need more faith. Oh, Jesus says, absolutely. And he heals his boy. When he's talking to his disciples, he tells them, here's how I want you to pray. Here's how I want you to continually approach me in prayer. And he tells a parable about this woman who needs justice. And I can imagine many of you can relate to this. There's been a time in your life you've been wronged. You've been hurt. Someone has done something, something awful to you and you've wanted justice. And I don't know what happened in this woman's life. We don't get the backstory, but she was so desperate for justice that she went day and night to this judge who didn't care about her and didn't care about justice and said, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And finally she annoyed him to death. And he said, fine, I'll give, I'll give you justice. And Jesus said, although I'm nothing like that unrighteous judge, that's how I want you to approach me. Day and night, cry out to me, What we see in Jesus is God loves to help his kids who cry out to him in desperation. We see it as he's approaching uh, Jericho. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to change the world, right? To die on the cross for our sins, to raise to new life and radically change the course of human history. It's a pretty important task. And he's headed into Jericho to head to Jerusalem. And on his way, just outside the city gates, there's this guy named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus can't see, he's blind. And he hears the commotion of this giant crowd coming into Jericho. And he says, what's going on? And he says, Jesus is coming by. And so he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people that are around Jesus, they realize that what Jesus is doing is far too important to be distracted by this guy. And so they just say, shh, shh, stop. Don't, don't annoy him, just leave him alone, be quiet. But this guy is so desperate for Jesus to to act on his behalf that he just cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And I love that picture of our God. 
because I'm guessing that most of us at one time or another has found ourselves in that position of desperation. We've just been at the end of our rope. Had no idea what we were gonna do with our life. Maybe we're suffering, suffering tragedy or heartache, maybe persecution, who knows? And to know that that is when God loves to come near, to comfort, and to act on behalf of his children. That's the kind of God that we worship. That's the kind of God that we sing about. A God who says, I love to help you in your desperation. One of my favorite examples of this is my sister. Um, her, her kids, um, when they were growing up, they were, they were the cutest kids ever. Just, I'm sure all kids are the cutest kids ever. But, you know, kids, they have these big old eyes and they're, they're sweet little voices sometimes. Um, but what she taught them was really amazing because kids, kids grow up in an adult world. Right? I mean, everything is adult height. Counters are adult height. All the things that they want and all the things that they need, all the things desire, they're just, they're too tall for them. And so what my sister taught her kids to say is, is to say, a little help, please. And, and as you know, kids, they can't always form their words really well. Her kids, what they would say is, a little help, please. <laughs> and just imagine the cutest kid that you can imagine looking up at you, reaching up their arms to you and saying, a little help, please. Doesn't your heart just melt? Like, doesn't your heart melt? You say, yes, I'll give you whatever you want. Yes, of course I'll help you. Yes, I'll lift you up. Yes, I'll give you this. Yes, you can have more candy. Your mom will never know. (laughs) But that's the way that God looks towards his kids is I want to help you. I love you. I'm a good, loving father. And when you cry out to me in desperation, when you realize your dependence upon me, of course I'm going to run to you. Of course I'm going to come to you. Of course I'm going to help you. Because I love you. I love you so much that I gave my life for you. What else could I give? What more could I offer? How else could I show you how much I love you? I died for you. And rose to new life so that you could be with me. And when you cry out, on des- cry out in desperation, of course I'm going to help you. That's the kind of God that we love. That's the kind of God that we worship. That's the kind of God that we come together and praise. A God who loves to help his kids who are desperate. And one thing that's been really powerful for me recently is that there have been many times in my life where I found myself in that position of desperation. You know, after heartbreak, uh, when I was wondering where my next meal was going to come from, just a number of different times. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, I'm pretty self sufficient. I'll be honest with you, I didn't wake up this morning and say, God, if you don't help me get out of bed, I'm going to fall and break a toe. And then when I got in the shower and said, God, if you don't help me, I'm going to drown because I won't close my mouth on time. <laughs> and when I went to get my breakfast, I said, God, if you don't provide food in the refrigerator, there's not going to be any. And I just woke up, I got up and I went to the bathroom and 
took a shower and made some food that I'd already bought and was already there for me. And what can happen is I can on a daily basis live my life in a way where I'm good to go, I'm fine. I don't even have to think about God all day long and I'm fine. But there's this passage in Revelation that is so convicting to me. Jesus is writing to a church, to a bunch of Jesus followers, and he says this. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And if you don't know what that means, he explains it right here. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, men and women, we don't need to change our circumstances to become desperate for God. We need to realize that we already are desperate for God. We just don't know it. I'm desperate for God every time I breathe because if he doesn't sustain me with his ruach, I won't live. I need God to help my brain synapses to fire. I need God to help my heart to beat. I need God to provide for me on a daily basis. This is why Jesus says, pray, provide for us our daily bread. And the beauty is, we serve a God who loves to help his kids who realize their dependence and cry out in desperation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are this God. That you are a God who loves us so much. That you are a God who gave his life for us. And that you are a God who loves to help us as we realize our dependence and cry out in desperation. Lord, I ask that you would help us to realize that. Help us to realize that sometimes the things that we have built in our lives to insulate us from being needy are the very things that convince us that we don't need you. I pray that we'd be okay with being known as needy for you. Help us reveal to us our need so that we can cry out to you in desperation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna do something a little bit different and we're gonna, we're gonna pray together, but we're gonna pray in a, in a really unique way. Um, I'm gonna teach you this thing called breath prayer. It's a way that Christians have been praying to God for hundreds of years. And it stems from Bartimaeus, his cry out to Jesus. And it's two phrases. One phrase that you say as you're breathing in and one phrase you say as you're breathing out but you say, Lord Jesus, son of God, Lord Jesus, son of God, and then have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's a way that as you breathe in and out all day long, you can be reminded of your need for God. Because at the very least, just like me, we're all sinners. And without a holy God and a perfect sacrifice, we got nothing. And so what I like you to do is just sit as comfortably as you can. And if you would, close your eyes and just 
begin by taking a slow, deep breath in and let it out. And take a long, slow, deep breath in and let it out. As you breathe in, hear the sound, yah, yah. And as you breathe out, hear the sound, way, way. And just breathe in and out the name of God. Yah. And remember that God is closer to you than the air that you breathe. And this God that is closer to you than the air you breathe loves you so much. And then I want you to practice the breath prayer. You can say it out loud or you can say it in your head, but Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as you breathe in, Lord Jesus, Son of God, and breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, we need you. We need you. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. 